When we left you last, our team was at the Mansfield, Ohio Cemetery at the newly marched gravesite of Mary Ellen Diener, the 14-year-old girl murdered by Lester Eubanks a half century ago. She is no longer with us in the physical sense, but as long as her convicted murderer is free, her soul cannot be at rest. With each passing month, Mary Ellen's sister, Myrtle Carter, continues to long for justice. And Deputy U.S. Marshal David Seiler, still in hot pursuit of her killer, has not let anything slow his manhunt, not even a global pandemic. Lester Eubanks, um, this case is my passion. I'm Sunny Hostin from ABC News. This is Have You Seen This Man? Over the last six episodes, the ABC News investigative unit has looked back at the gruesome crime that landed Lester on death row. He didn't know her. She was only 14 years old, and he was in his 20s. Um... I would venture to say that any female who happened to be walking down that street that night and ran into Lester Eubanks would have been a victim. And it's just so happens that Mary Ellen was that victim that night. We heard about an Ohio prison warden's fateful decision to let him go Christmas shopping and his daring escape. Lester went from death row to commuted to a life sentence to then a year or two later, now he's such an honor prisoner that he can be taken unescorted uh, and left at a mall to go Christmas shopping. <laughs> it's just, it's ridiculous. I mean, I, you just, I, I think normal people can't comprehend that that could actually happen. And we joined up with the cold case squad of the U.S. Marshals as they tried to pick up Lester's trail. With this case, I don't let Monday come. There's no Monday. There's seven days a week. Like, you don't turn it off, no matter what. Um, these are one, this is one of those cases that you sleep with. Today, Lester remains at large, a most wanted fugitive who has evaded police for the better part of five decades. An unsolved case remains the source of deep frustration. This guy has been so lucky his entire, his, the entire time he has either been helped or, or, propped up or provided for or covered for or just been had blind luck for this whole time. It's unbelievable. But there are new signs the marshals may be getting closer. In recent months, this podcast generated fresh interest in the case and a flood of new tips to the U.S. Marshals. One of those leads took our team deep into the woodlands of Alabama, and that's where we find ABC News senior investigative reporter Matthew Mosk. In 1.8 miles, the destination is on your right. I'd been driving through central Alabama for about four hours. As we headed north from Mobile, my colleague Kate Holland and I watched the woods and marshland pass by in a blur. We were 30 miles north of Birmingham when we finally left the interstate and started down a two-lane road. 
It led to Warrior, Alabama. Slowly losing cell phone reception. Oh, there went our last, our last bar. Hey, we're back off the grid. Our destination was marked with a brick sign, the Alabama Teen Challenge. We eased onto a muddy driveway. We thought this would take us to a secluded residential treatment center for troubled youth. We had reason to believe that this is where Lester Eubanks may have worked in the 1990s. But first we had to find it. All we could see were more trees. We followed tire tracks deeper and deeper into the woods. Proceed to the route. Now we're on a very ruddy, narrow road, dirt road. Make sure not to blow out my tires down here. Of all the tips that reinvigorated the search for Lester, one of the ones that most interested the U.S. Marshals came from an Ohio police officer. He had worked on the case years earlier, and it was his tip that first took me to Alabama just a few weeks after our final episode had posted. Michael Vinson was an Ohio State trooper who always wondered about a promising lead he had developed while working the case decades ago. I met him at the patrol barracks, just outside of Mansfield, where he's now in charge. All right, so, um, Lieutenant, is that what we, you're? Yes. Okay. Vincent told me he remembered one of his bosses calling him to say there was an old escape case that needed fresh eyes. One of my bosses down in Columbus had called me and had said, hey, there's a case from up in the Mansfield area I need you to do some work on. At the time, Lester's trail had gone cold. So Vincent and a partner headed over to the home of Lester's father, Mose Eubanks. Mose administered to folks in his community, especially those with struggles. Vincent said he learned right away Lester's escape was still a very sore subject. It was a summer day. I remember we pulled up. Uh, we were in an unmarked car. Of course, we we're wearing suits, suit and ties. And uh, the, the garage door was open. And uh, there was an elderly gentleman in the back, uh, like, leaned over the back of the trunk, like the trunk was up, like he'd went to the store or something. And uh, we kind of introduced ourselves and, and told him, you know, hey, we're here to, you know, see if you'll talk to us about, you know, about Lester. And his, uh, his statement, it was very profound. He was like, uh, I'll talk to you guys about anything you want, but I'm not going to talk about Lester. Vincent thought if he pushed the subject, maybe Mose would get emotional. I, I threw a question out to him. I'm like, well, do you feel that, that the, the, the Diener family got justice for what your son did to their daughter, and now he's out and about? And he, he, I kind of baited him into it, and, he, and, and, and like I said, he said, there's not a, anything anybody can do to bring that girl back, and, and people change their lives. And uh, I thought that was odd because he wasn't ever talking in the past tense, mm -hmm. like, Lester was deceased. He was talking like, you know, he did it, people change their lives and they move on with their lives, something to that effect. Yeah. And it was, I thought it was odd. And, and when we got back in the car, we looked at each other and it was like, there's no doubt he knows where, where Lester's at. He made a statement somewhere in the effect of, I pray for Lester every day. Mose repeatedly tried to change the subject. They asked about Lester, but all he wanted to talk about was his own good work assisting wayward prisoners. One of them was that he had helped a guy that had been involved in drugs 
And this guy, uh, after Mose had helped him, he had moved to Alabama and had started its own business and was, was you know, doing well. And, and Mose was kind of talking and bragging about that. And that struck you as odd that he would bring up this other person who he... I, Yeah, for no reason, yeah. There again, when people talk to the police a lot of times, they get nervous. And they'll, they'll sometimes they'll ramble on yep. and, and say things they maybe didn't want to say. I'm not saying that Mose was nervous, but he probably said more that day than he really wanted to say to us. Vincent told me the reference to Alabama stuck with him because of something else that was in the investigative file. It was a note from an informant who had told police that she thought Lester was living in a small town near Tuscaloosa. Vincent got a court order to begin tracking Moses' phone calls. And there it was again. Well, lo and behold, when I get the phone records back from on Moe's, there's several calls to this place in Warrior, Alabama, okay. which is called the Teen Challenge Center. And that, that struck me as, okay, Moe's mentioned Alabama, but he helped a guy in Alabama. I remember reading something about a lead or a possible location that somebody had given information back in the 90s that Lester was somewhere in Alabama, a small town in Alabama. So I thought, oh, oh, okay, let's, let's look at this and see what these numbers are. Vincent reached out to the Alabama Bureau of Investigation and asked them to check it out. And in fact, the numbers did trace to something called the Teen Challenge Center. The information, they, they, they were able to find that there was a, an employee there uh, that fit the mold or the description of Lester that's about the same age and stuff. And this was somebody you're talking about who was working at the... Teen Challenge Center. The Teen Challenge Center. Yep. Then another tip came in. Someone told Vincent about a woman who had been receiving marriage counseling from Moe's. And the lady says, well, you know, it's funny. When we were there, he had to excuse himself. His phone rang. He went into another room, took the call like, a, I, I believe it was like one of the old wire. You remember the old phones you had the antenna that pulls up? Yeah. Walked in, excused himself, walked into another room, according to the informant, was on the phone for several minutes, came back, says, you know, I'm sorry, but I don't get to talk to my son very often. He was just taking a break from a painting job. And he, he lives in Alabama. Huh. Like so many times before, there was a promising lead about Lester's whereabouts, and then it just slipped through the cracks. The Alabama Bureau of Investigation may have heard about a man fitting Lester's description, but that was as far as it went. If Lester had been working at this small retreat for troubled teens, there was now only one way to find out. To go there myself. Already I can see we're coming out of a more developed area and moving into a less developed area. In one mile, turn right onto Rickwood Caverns Road. It's a little bit more of a hilly area. There's still a lot of woods interrupted occasionally by some small houses, but much more hilly with the sort of dips and creeks and valleys. Now we're on a very ruddy, narrow road, dirt road. Make sure not to blow out my tires down here. About a mile into the woods, there was a clearing. The buildings looked like barracks, set up around a central driveway. 
we pulled up to a main office. I'm guessing they don't get too many visitors here. The sign says what? Hi. How are you? Good, how are you? I'm good. I was wondering if I could get your help. Uh, sure. Two women greeted us, Nicole and Tiffany. I explained who we were and what we were doing, that there were reports suggesting Lester may have passed through these parts about two decades ago. It was the men's center back then. It was the men's center until 2009. Okay. Now it's the women's center. Is there anybody here who would have been here back then who might remember that period? Um, he would have worked like as a painter or a handyman. Um, come through Jerry Norris. I mean, I, I don't know if he would know him or not, but he had something to do with it out here. But can I show you his picture? Does this have you seen this man? Does he look familiar to you? Mm-mm. No, he doesn't look familiar. I just moved up here in Alabama. So. I asked if they thought Lester may have been in Warrior. Yeah, really, anything's possible. Yeah. But, but he could have come through the program. Yeah, like if he had been here working, uh, that. That was everybody that works in Teen Challenge normally has gone through the program and graduated. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I'll see. I mean, you know, I don't know if I'll find out anything else. Do you have a, a card? Or I anything? do. Yeah, I do. I hope you find him for sure. Nicole told us she would tell the old manager, Jerry, about our visit. And as we headed out, I looked around. I couldn't help but wonder if Lester had been here. It certainly would be somewhere you could live where you would hardly be noticed. Great Thank meeting you, so you guys. Thank, Thank you so much. Yours are sweet. Thank you. All right. Well, we'll call, uh, we'll call Jerry. We'll call Jerry. Jerry's house was just a few miles away. Once we retraced our path through the woods, we headed for his place. Nicole and Tiffany told us he had a memory like an elephant, and that's just what we needed. Hi. I'm not sure we're at the right place. We're looking for Jerry Franks. Jerry's son answered. He said his father wasn't home. I explained a bit about Lester, and he had a surprising reaction. It's not my dad, is it? It's not. No, no, no. <laughs> he only yeah. would have been like 10. Yeah, no, no, unless this is your dad. That is not my dad. <laughs> his name is Lester Eubanks. Um, okay. And for a period of time, the FBI thought that he uh, was working at something called the Teen Center in Warrior. Teen Challenge. Teen Challenge. Yeah. In Warrior. Okay. Uh, around the early 2000s. Okay. And I had your dad's name on a list of people that may have been asked. Yeah, he was the director at Teen Challenge for 15 years, okay. I think. But he's also from Cleveland, Ohio. That's why I was like... Oh, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. So the thought was that for some maybe short period of time, uh, Lester Eubanks may have done some painting work or handiwork or something at uh, the Teen Challenge um, okay. because can, they, they track some phone calls there. I mean, um, it's very possible. He could have been a person that was there at Teen Challenge. We had a lot of shady characters. I was in the car just a few minutes later when Jerry gave me a call. Right away, he told me he did remember the chaplain from Ohio, the Reverend Mose Eubanks. And he remembered later on when federal agents came asking about Lester. And do you remember the contact when the FBI reached out? Oh, I do. It scared, scared the new uh, out of me. I'm from Cleveland, and, and uh, I'm now a licensed counselor and an ordained minister. I, I didn't know what to think when, when they started asking me about stuff from a guy from Ohio. I thought, oh, my goodness, what do one of my old friends do? But there was one reason he knew for sure 
Lester was not the man who showed up at the Teen Challenge Center. If I'm correct, Lester Eubanks was African-American, correct? That's right. I gave your son the, the uh, image of what he might have looked like. Yeah, I, I, I remember the police showing me the picture. I even thought the chaplain was, uh, was uh, Caucasian. So that, <laughs> going back to how much uh, I, I, I knew nothing about it, and, and Lester was never in our program. Uh, our program, uh, unfortunately, because we, we uh, the location we're at uh, draws more, uh, more Caucasian uh, clients, most of them being from Alabama. I've only had uh, two, two guys from Ohio, and they were both uh, white. Okay. And were there ever any people who came and maybe did painting work or odd jobs at the, at the site out there, or would that not have been? That ministry was shoestring budget. Uh, you know, our guys did all, all, all of our own work. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. We, you know, I, I, I know the guy couldn't have been there, and we, w- we would have known it if he had been. For Ohio State Trooper Michael Vinson, the Alabama lead always felt like a thread that needed pulling. Now we had run it down and learned it would go nowhere. As frustrating as it was, I had learned from the U.S. Marshals that this was all part of a painstaking process. Every tip had to be pursued, and it was just as important to know when one should be erased as it was to know when to keep digging. As we were about to discover, the marshals were starting to get new tips and fresh leads. We know he was in California at that time. So it could be our guy. Could be our guy. When we come back, with every new call, you can feel the investigation get a fresh breath of life. After the break. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from? And does it hold up today? 
Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. While I chased the old hunch about Lester living in Alabama down a blind alley, David Seiler and his partner, Annie Murphy, were back on the road with new leads, some of them generated by this podcast. I had come back to Ohio as the two deputies, invigorated by fresh public interest in the case, were back on the road. They were armed with the names of people they believed might have maintained ties to Lester over the years. I watched from a distance as they carefully approached a house, knocked on the door, and slipped inside to interview a person they thought could help. Thank you very much again. Okay. All right. Okay. Stay warm. It's freezing out here and miserable. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Hey. More doors to knock on. I like that. There's always more doors. There's always more always doors. Always more doors. The marshals believe there's still a tight network of secrecy protecting Lester Eubanks, especially in the areas of Ohio where his family still lives. Approaching people in these communities requires extra care. The hope is an insider will provide that one clue that leads to his capture. Siler spent nearly an hour in that house and then quickly hustled away. When I met him nearby, you could tell his adrenaline was pumping. This was a huge step forward. This is a huge step forward for for not only an investigation, but for those who are looking to help quietly. He looked optimistic. So there's a wall around Lester Eubanks is what, is what you've seen over this time. And uh, so this was a little breakthrough. We feel that uh, we were able to put a, a small pushpin hole through that wall. Um, the interview went very well. Uh, building rapport and trust within um, is what we've been working to do, and I think we did that today. And I feel that we made leaps and bounds in reference to communication with uh, a person who's uh, pretty close to others. And I think that uh, we have an opportunity that, that could help us later, later down yeah. the road. Yeah, a lot of this is um, strictly momentum on the case, and it's hard to stay um, moving forward when you feel like you're just going uphill, uphill, uphill. Um, so it's nice to feel like you've at least hit maybe a little plateau for a little bit. Um, and you can, Dave can work, and we can work on um, the next steps, who to talk to next, what research to do next. Um, but that's, that's what this case has been from the beginning, is taking little pieces and little parts and building on all of that. One source of new leads has been media coverage. This podcast came at the start of a sustained push by the marshals to get this case on the public's radar. A number of true crime programs have aired Lester's story, including one featuring John Walsh called In Pursuit. I met up with Siler when he traveled to the Marshal Service headquarters to brief top brass on the fresh attention. He called it riding the momentum. You know, the fact that we get to put this guy on In Pursuit is a blessing in, in, in disguise. Um, we've been able to push him pretty much across the country and to get this focus is... is uh, Basically riding the momentum, if you will. Um, someone's going to be able to, to dial us into where 
exactly Lester is. Um, we have locations that we have been able to identify where he was at, um, covering California, Seattle, all the way back to Ohio, um, North Carolina, Columbus, Ohio. We had leads in Canada and Mexico as well. The leadership team asked one of the most pressing questions about the manhunt. How old is he today? 76 years of age. Family history of medical problems or anything else that might? Uh, his dad lived to be in his 90s. Um, very healthy people, looked extremely young. That evening, as the show aired, more than a dozen phone operators and technical experts from the marshal service gathered at a special call center. Only minutes into the program, and the calls started stacking up. You Do you remember page? the name? I just Do you have their address or oh, where they used to live? Marshall's page. Yeah, if you Google him, you're going to get. Right. Siler knew that most of the tips would lead nowhere, but also that it would take only one new clue to lead him to Lester. So he was a loner. Um, do you know if he drove a, a vehicle? Damn it. Oh, so the agent, the agent hands picture. Right. So when you said Orlando, Florida, can you give me the exact location that you saw him? Because I know there's a lot of different um, shopping centers like that. So do you have an exact location? Siler hovered over the operators in their headsets as they spoke with tipsters. Like one who said he remembered selling a car in cash to a man fitting Lester's description. That's good. 94, California, Southern. Looked at a car dealership. Purchased the car cash. You can identify that car, who sold it, how we sold it. Irvine, California. That's got to be it. You call the marshals in California and you send them over there. Yeah, we're going to go. He had a bunch of work issues at the Chevrolet dealer that they couldn't, like, justify why his social security number wasn't working. There's a bunch of holes in his story. And when was this guy's last contact with the person? 1994. We know he was in California at that time. So it could be our guy. could be our guy. Apparently, the man buying the car went by the name Charles Eubanks. So one of the aliases possibly that uh, called in on a tip that we identified that this possible alias of Charles Eubanks has a number of P.O. boxes, which is abnormal for most human beings. <laughs> and his birthday Twelve thirty, and he used twelve twenty-five, and he used twelve thirty before, so it's a definite possibility. Dozens of tips like this tumbled in. So, if you think you've seen Lester Eubanks, don't approach him. Please call or text us. I'm John Walsh, and this is in pursuit. But no one moved. The phones kept ringing into the early hours. Each new caller grilled with questions. After midnight. Siler was staring at a stack of new tips. He didn't want to leave. One of the operators offered to stick around and keep fielding calls into the early morning hours. If anything comes in really, really late, like, I will... Nice call. I'll call you. It feels like it's been a long time since David Siler began this hunt. The pressure he's always felt to clear this case has not subsided. 
You know, this monster has been on the run since 1973, and no one said this is going to be easy. Everyone wants to see a Hollywood ending. The year 2020 has been an especially challenging one to mount a nationwide manhunt. He told me that unlike much of the country, his investigation did not shut down when the coronavirus hit, even when he contracted the virus himself and was quarantined in his basement. It's what we do. It's definitely an obstacle. And uh, personally, I had to overcome my own uh, spell with the coronavirus. Um, enabled me to quarantine and, and actually get a little more time to be able to go through details of the investigation that I wasn't able to focus on um, before, but we were able to highlight some new and interesting uh, leads that uh, I believe are, are getting us closer to capturing Lester. For some of those who may be holding the secret of Lester's whereabouts, the temptation of monetary reward could be especially enticing during these economic hardships brought about by the pandemic. This fall, the Marshal Service took an unusual step and doubled the bounty for Lester to $50,000, the most ever offered since the Top 15 Most Wanted program began 37 years ago. You know, this $50,000 has really started to close his circles. Um, I think it's going to get us to the front door. Sooner or later, someone's going to open up. You know, that that's 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 some, how can I say this? You know, that money, that $50,000 is a big relief during this pandemic. And it could help loosen up the jaws of his associates. Another step Seiler has taken involves the chief of the agency's behavioral sciences unit, Dr. Michael Burke, asking him to take a fresh look at the Lester Eubanks file. On a sweltering day back in August, I met up with Dr. Burke out in front of the U.S. Marshal's headquarters to see what he had learned. So we do research into different types of offenders so we can better, better find them, locate them, uh, conduct better risk assessment and just learn a little bit more about how they tick. If we, th we think it's going to help capture, capture a bad guy, um, we're, we're probably going to take a stab at it. Um, you know, I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Dr. Burke told me the underlying rage behind Lester's crime and his ability to cut ties with his friends and loved ones are patterns that most likely still present themselves in the life he's living now. From a psychological perspective, he's he's the same he's the same person he was years ago. He may have slowed slowed down physically, but even in his middle seventies, absolutely, absolutely. Eubanks has you know managed to fly under the radar, uh, it, as far as you know, as far as we know. Um, but if he's out there, and and I know that he is, uh, he is he is absolutely capable of committing serious acts of harm against very innocent, vulnerable people. There is this idea, though, that Lesser, after his escape, found this ability to be disciplined. He, he practiced a lot of self-disciplinary techniques and martial arts and in his trying to control his behavior. It is such a deep-seated way of interacting with people it's it's become a part of his fabric and and you, it, we 
we can change our behaviors. We can become disciplined to change our behaviors, but we can't change that. It's extraordinarily hard to change that internal fabric. It takes years of therapy to get people to sometimes even have insight into what the fabric is. Never mind like how to permanently alter that. It's extraordinarily difficult. So I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying it's impossible. Um, what I'm saying is that it, he could be holding it together until that one day when he doesn't. True. One of the things I forgot to ask you about was uh, the question that a lot of people ask about whether Lester Eubanks is, is dead. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's an active case. So, but, you know, to, to your point, um, you know, he is getting up in, in, in years. He's like, what, 77 or something, 78. Uh, but, you know, men in his family tend to live uh, long lives. Um, he's healthy as far as, you know, as far as we know. And um, so it's quite possible that he's still out there just, um, you know, living day to day. And, uh, you know, but I, I would assume if I were the investigators working this case, uh, I, I definitely would continue to assume that he's alive. Dr. Burke told me Siler was right to see significance in the way members of Lester's family have spoken. Those people who told him, you don't know where he is and you're never going to find him. As far as someone saying he's alive and you're never going to catch him, we've we've heard that plenty of times. And, you know, it's funny, sometimes someone will say that and we end up catching the guy like a week later. It's almost like a, a jinx thing to say. I, I, I look forward to someone saying you guys will never find him because it just seems to be that all of a sudden we, we do end up finding him. So, uh, but yeah, I would I, I think it's well placed for them to keep going with this hunt. Since this podcast first aired, so many people have asked me if the Marshalls are getting any closer. Lester's been on the run for nearly five decades, and finding him is not coming quickly. But if there's a purpose in coming back to you now with this episode, it's to share this. The hunt for Lester Eubanks is very much alive. Seiler told me he's running through stacks of tips including some that he believes hold more promise. Each of the new ones fills him with purpose. It's pretty nice, man, you know, to be able to feel the support of, um, you know, the Marshal Service, feel the support of the country. People are reaching out from all over. Once they hear the story of this poor little girl and this monster, they have come from everywhere. Tips are coming from California, Washington, um, obviously Ohio. Florida, Texas, Iowa, Nebraska, you know, Connecticut, as well as Maine. They're, they're reaching out all over. There was a moment in Warrior, Alabama, as I was just getting set to leave the Teen Challenge Center, that reminded me, for every person out there who may be helping Lester or covering his tracks, there are many, many more who are praying for justice and who remain hopeful that one day Mary Ellen's killer will be captured. The Alabama Teen Challenge may be tucked away deep in the woods in a remote part of America, but even there I found a hunger to see wounds healed and wrongs made right. Just before I turned to go, a counselor, Nicole, asked me to hold on. Awesome. Do you mind if we pray for you before you go? Sure. Would that be okay with you? That would be fine. Thank you. That's very okay. nice. Yeah. 
Heavenly Father, God, we love you, Lord. We praise you, God, and we thank you. God, we thank you for this mission that these people are on. God, I thank you, Lord, for blessing it. And I thank you, Lord, for helping them find what they're looking for, God. I thank you, Lord, that every door that um, is from you, you open it, God. I thank you that you will close doors that are not from you. Lead their way. Show them what they're looking for, God. And we thank you, Lord, for your will being done. We love you, Lord, and we praise you, God. Thank you for safe travels. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. We hope this will not be the end of this story. But now, the challenge belongs to you. Please be alert and contact the U.S. Marshals at their hotline, 1-866-4WANTED, and let them know if you have seen this man. Thank you for listening. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.